0: Matthew chapter 13, I direct your attention one more time. Matthew 13, we'll be picking up this morning at verse 53. This is at page 819 in your pew Bible, if that's helpful for you. It is uh, interesting to me that just before Jesus started into these seven parables about the kingdom that we've been considering these past few weeks, that Jesus' family His uh, mother and his brothers, anyway, had made an appearance in the city of Capernaum, where Jesus was preaching at that time, the home base of his Galilean ministry. And now Jesus makes a trip to Nazareth, a trip from Capernaum to the town of Nazareth, the residence of his family, and the place where he grew up. I don't know exactly what to make of that, but we do know that Matthew has been recently presenting to us the differing responses that Jesus receives to his ministry in Galilee. Mainly, as we've seen, alas, unbelieving ones. And to save for Mary, his mother, his family was included among those unbelievers. They appeared at that time to be the hard soil, didn't they, from the parable. They appeared to be the tares among the wheat, the bad fish among the good. That would change, praise be to God, later on, at some later point, we know, because two of the books in our Bible are written by brothers of Jesus, James and Jude. And uh, James would become an important leader in the church. In fact, we imagine it was likely sometime between Christ's ascension that we celebrated last Sunday and Pentecost that we're celebrating today that they came to believe in the risen Jesus Christ who appeared uh, to them. But uh, at that time anyway, the, the unbelieving response of the Nazarene family was part and parcel of the unbelieving response Jesus received from the entire town of Nazareth. The question, of course, for you and for me this morning is this. What will you do with this Jesus Christ? Will you receive him and trust in him, rest upon him alone for eternal life as he offers it to you? Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing in particular. We pray once more for the work of your Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And we know that he has done powerful work and continues to do so. May he, in our presence and in our hearts this morning, open our eyes to Jesus and uh, shine his light upon our Savior once more that we may love, adore, trust, and obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? A couple of things to note here. This will be the last time we hear about Jesus in a synagogue. Apparently, he is going to be moving out of the strictures of Judaism uh, to some degree at this point. It is also a bad portent uh, that they uh, are saying this Man, in verse 54, about Jesus, they know full well who he is. But um, that expression doesn't give us a lot of confidence. They're receiving him well. And indeed, these next questions show it. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man Get all these things. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. When I was a young preacher, I can't remember exactly how young I had occasion to go back and preach in my childhood church. And how that invitation came about, I can't remember either, but I do remember how it felt to stand in that pulpit from which I had received the word for the better part of two decades and to look out at the congregation with whom I had worshipped in that sanctuary, shoulder shoulder, shoulder to shoulder for that same period of time. It was a bit surreal to me, and perhaps to several of them as well. There they were in their pews, my former Sunday school teachers, my cadet troop leaders, my parents' friends, my grandparents' friends, and some who I was quite certain had changed my diaper in the nursery at some time. There were a couple of my classmates, those Those guys who really thought they were something else, you know, when we were young and frosted me out of the clutch of the cool kids. And there were the girls that I had been afraid to talk to. Now there I was, leading them in in worship and preaching God's word to them. I wonder what they were thinking. You know, were they saying to themselves, it seems like just yesterday we passed this quiet, awkward kid in the hallway or... Or maybe look at how much he's grown, or, or even, who does he think he is, you know, standing here and preaching to me? I could detect on the expression, from the expression on my former classmates' faces, that based on their familiarity with me, they were definitely underestimating the outstanding quality and caliber of the preaching they were getting that morning. Of course, from my side of the pulpit, I couldn't help but, but think about what they were thinking of me, you know, how well is the message being received, even whether they despised me or loved me. Was anyone perhaps even proud of me? You know, I couldn't help but think it, you know, it's human nature to think such things. And I expect that the experience of returning to Nazareth and standing before the congregation in the synagogue was very much like that for Jesus too. Now Here, Matthew, along with the other synoptic gospel writers, Mark and Luke, give us a glimpse into what was happening on both sides of the pulpit in Nazareth. And it is on those two sides of the pulpit that we look this morning for the lessons that the Holy Spirit has to teach us. First, I direct your attention to Jesus' side of the pulpit, and looking there, what strikes me is the true humanity of Jesus, the real and genuine and true humanity of our Savior. This is a point we don't often ponder, or maybe not nearly often enough. Jesus was a true man. Jesus was a man in every way, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, in every way like we are, save for sin. Of course, there are are two natures in Jesus, humanity and divinity, humanity and deity, but the two must never be allowed to mingle in our minds And especially in our hearts, as difficult and mysterious as that must be without violating Scripture. Jesus was a human being just as we are with human needs and human passions and desires and feelings and limitations. It's amazing to us, but there there are things that Jesus didn't know. There were things that Jesus had to learn because at one point he didn't know them. You know, the Bible is at pains in many places to underscore this fact that he lived as a man, that he managed to conduct his ministry as a man, that he lived with the limitations and the powers of ordinary human beings. It had to be this way for him to save us. From our sin. He was, as Paul says, born of a woman, born under law that he might redeem those who are under law. So he lived and he died as a man. As we watched, as we witnessed him besting the devil back in Matthew chapter 4 out in the wilderness, we saw him do that with no more weapons at his disposal than you and I have the Word of God, prayer the present Holy Spirit. He sympathizes with you and your struggles because he passed through those struggles the same way that you do every single day. He lived his life the same way you do, by faith and not by sight. And when he died... He died the same way you and I will unless the Lord comes first when his heart stopped beating. Though the writers of the Gospels do not say it explicitly, this this had to be a momentous occasion for Jesus to go back to his hometown to preach. You know, he was famous by then, especially in the larger towns in Galilee along the sea. Nazareth was small and less consequential. So his disciples, and and truly maybe even Jesus himself, expected a warm welcome when they got to Nazareth. And even perhaps enthusiastically excited. Can't you see the newspaper headline in the Galilean Gazette? You know, local boy makes good. but it was not to be. Despite the undeniable works of power that he had performed, a few of them even among them, and the extraordinary wisdom of his teaching, once the initial astonishment wore off, it was not accolades and approbation, but rather contempt and rejection that met him there. It was not mere indifference. It was downright derisive disinterest. Who does he think he is? He's gotten too big for his britches, that's for sure. Who is he to make these grandiose claims and expect us to listen to him? We know his family, don't we? We know them. We remember when he was knee-high to a grasshopper. This is a carpenter's son. Now, nothing wrong with being a carpenter, by the way. It was a noble profession that covered everything then from building chicken coops and, and cradles to houses and shops, working in wood and stone. Makes me wonder if some of these people had even been Jesus' customers at one time, whether they paid their bills on time or not. The point is, we knew this man's father, and his mother's name is Mary. We see her at the market picking up vegetables for crying out loud. We know his brother's names. We know his many sisters that are living among us, probably had married by then, had their own families there in Nazareth. So where did he learn all these things, they say? And in a moment, familiarity, as it often does, gave birth to contempt. They took offense at him. They despised him. And Luke tells us in his account that his hometown, his former neighbors, even customers and friends attempted to kill him, throw him off the cliff. could they not detect Just by looking at him, that he is Messiah? Apparently not. (laughs) Very apparently not. The prophecy was true. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He looked like what he was, a genuine human being. Jesus was not a superman. Let us extinguish that from our minds once and for all. Jesus was not a superman. An ordinary human being, according to the scriptures, easy to miss because there would not be anything about him that would visibly mark him out as the world's greatest man, as the deliverer sent from God. This is what theologians call his humiliation. Part of his humiliation, we've been recently celebrating in worship, haven't we, his exaltation. Even this past Lord's Day, we were celebrating his ascension into heaven. But we remember our own catechism asking, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist and answering Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law undergoing the miseries of this life the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time is was a low condition indeed low in so many ways even the town of his youth was looked down upon by the jews do you remember the response from nathaniel when he first heard about jesus remember what nathaniel says nazareth can anything good come from there And now Jesus is being rejected by them, by his own lowly hometown, unrecognized as the Son of God sent from heaven. Mighty works, authoritative authoritative teaching notwithstanding, they still couldn't see him any other way than as a common villager who looked like them and sounded like them and who had grown up around them. That's how completely and genuinely Jesus was a man. Now it's time for us to stop and think about this man, Jesus. Think about how it must have felt for him to be rejected by his own hometown. Mark tells us that he was astonished. He was astonished by their response. Especially think about how it must have felt for Jesus to be accused of things like arrogance. Of being a know-it-all upstart on some sort of power trip. Here our Savior's humiliation runs deep and painful. Not only is he unrecognized by them as Messiah... Now they consider him to be a downright offense. They are offended with him. Now don't you hate it when people take offense with you and when they criticize you, when they they speak critically of you and negatively about you. You know what this is like. You know how it hurts. How it cuts so deeply. It's hard to get it out of your mind, isn't it, when you've been subjected to this. Especially when you lie down at night. It's depressing. Imagine how Jesus felt. How long that night that he following the day of that sermon must have been for him, a sleepless night. He wasn't uppity. He wasn't, he wasn't arrogant. He was humble. He was a servant. He had, he had come to serve, not to be served. He never asked for it. He came to lay down his life for them. How hurtful their rejection must have been and their accusations. How they must have stung This too, dear flock, Jesus suffered for you and for me. His humiliation didn't start when they stripped off his clothes and nailed him to the cross. It started long before that. It started in the cradle, as a matter of fact, in the manger, and intensified as he grew. This he underwent and underwent willingly to save you from your sin. He, the Savior, who who knew by this time in his life that he was the Messiah, was willing to be thought of as much, much less, even to be thought ill of by others, even as he was saving the world. He whose entire life, every breath had been committed to godliness and goodness, now accused by his loved ones of just the opposite. His heart was breaking. This too was prophesied that the Savior would say of Himself to Himself, I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Why? Why was He willing to be hurt this badly, to be cut to the quick, to be thought a pompous fool by his own family, by his own friends from home. Just this and only this, to save you. to pay the redemption price of humiliation that had to be paid to purchase you. So much more could be said, but let's turn our eyes now to the other side of the pulpit, to the people. Consider with me their astonishing unbelief, and it is astonishing, isn't it? I mean, he was right there he's right there right in front of them they had not seen many miracles perhaps but they'd seen a few and they'd heard about a whole lot more healings deliverances even the raising of the dead and they could hear him with their own ears they had heard they were hearing his authoritative teaching his amazing wisdom indeed they were astonished at first By him, but they become angry in an instant and even try to kill him. How can it be? We look at this text and we read this series of questions. Is he not the carpenter's son? Is this not, is not his mother Mary and so on? But you know, this this familiarity expressed in these questions can hardly explain the visceral hatred that burns in them against him. You know, they could easily, on the basis of, you know, we know his father, we know his mother, you know, who is this, just ignored him, just walked away. But instead, they actively hate him. They, 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 they strive and, and gnash their teeth against, them, against him. You know, you would think, you would think that maybe the, the miracles, the healings and so on would have won their affection or at least their admiration, you know, but just the very opposite. We sang together recently at our Good Friday worship service here in this sanctuary, these head-scratching words. Why? What hath my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight. Sweet injuries, yet all his deeds Their hatred feeds. They against him rise. It seems that everywhere he went doing nothing but good, they hated him and hated him all the more in proportion to the good he did. He came to his own, John says, and his own would not receive him. Really? You know, the very ones? who were looking for the Messiah, the ones, the Jews, who, and, and these now who become living witnesses in Nazareth to the great works of Jesus, they reject him and with bitter rage to boot? How do we explain this? Uh, you start in, you think you, you think you would do better, don't you? You would have done better than they. Of course you think you would have, but that's only because you believe in him now. The fact is you and I would have done the very same thing. Everyone does. What happened... In Nazareth is exactly what every human being does with Jesus. It's been said that the man of Nazareth is every man, and the woman of Nazareth is every woman. What we've just read about here in Nazareth is simply one example of the deep seated hatred of God, the animosity against God that resides in every single human heart. Since sin entered the world, we have been, the Scripture says, the enemies of God by nature, rebels, who would rather die forever than turn to Him for salvation. a profoundly irrational stance, isn't it? If you were drowning, you were on your last breath, and even your worst enemy came and extended a hand to you to pull you out, you know what you would do. You would grab his hand with both of your hands to live, not push him scornfully away. Let alone the extended and gentle, loving, nail-scarred hand of one, of a friend who wishes to be closer to you than a brother. There's no sufficient explanation for this, is there short of the Bible's teaching that man's love for himself and hatred for God is in our very nature since the fall. So much so that regardless of of the number of amazing demonstrations of God's power and love that he has presented and continues to present, mankind, man will not let go his idols to turn to God. God is repulsive to the human soul. And this explains why. When the Son of God came into the world, He was regarded so widely as an enemy, not as a friend. It was Jesus' godlikeness that made Him so utterly hated, even by these, and think about this, these religious people. And they were religious, deeply religious people. And they thought themselves to be pretty good people. That's why they're at the synagogue. No doubt they thought themselves to be doing a great service by driving Jesus out of town and trying to throw Him off the cliff and rid the world of Him. As Blaise Pascal once wrote, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious convictions. This is how blind And how intractable unbelief is and how utterly captured is the human heart in its iron fetters. And this is why Jesus went on to say that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Only a great and mighty work of divine power and a human heart can free that heart to love Jesus and to trust in him and to follow him the apostle Paul says that we are dead in our sins we must be made alive again and only God can do that Jesus remember what he said to the inquiring Nicodemus also a very religious man a good man we might even say oh Nicodemus you must be born again to even see the kingdom of God. Only the Spirit can do that. Now we struggle with this truth of Scripture, don't we? Of course we do. We all know many people who are sincere, people who are sincerely seeking to do good things. And if we could meet these folk from Nazareth today, we would find them very similar to the small-town people in our community today, church people in our community today. I'm not saying that wicked people always act as wickedly as they possibly can. Can you imagine this world? if it were so. But taking the scripture at its word we understand that below even the most sincere and moral motions of men and women apart from Christ even at their most religious hides and dwells a deep deep animosity against God came bubbling to the surface that day in Nazareth, didn't it? And it rises up from time to time in our modern experience, and we'll see it most clearly, I'm convinced, at the great judgment day to come. What this history in Nazareth teaches us today is the great and truly astonishing grace and power of God, of God the Holy Spirit in particular on this Pentecost Sunday, to give us rebels new hearts to give us dead ones new life to give us faith apart from which we would still be haters of jesus were it not for the sevenfold graces showered upon us by the holy spirit that we sang about just a moment Ago, The Holy Spirit working within us, teaching rebel hearts to pray, as we sang with Margaret Clarkson in our first hymn. We would still be offended with him. And by him, we would be just like those people in Nazareth. We'd hate him. Near flock, my dear sister, my dear brother... Do not think it a small thing that you are a Christian today. You didn't make yourself a Christian. Only God has done this. And only God could have done this. Broken the back of the rebellion of your heart against him and replaced it with life. And... By the way, no amount of evidence, no miracles, I don't care how many stacked one on another, no number of dead people risen and walking, no teaching regardless of how wise or impressive could have accomplished what God has done in and for you by the Holy Spirit. Apart from that, Jesus would remain as much an offense to you as he does to every unbeliever. But as it is, you have new life. You have light. You have life. You have love. He is your hope. He is your joy. Jesus is your peace. Jesus is You're all. You're all in all. There may be some in the hearing of my voice right now who are someone who is not a Christian, not a follower of this Jesus of Scripture. But you're thinking right now that you ought to be. You really need to be. If so, then God is already visiting your soul with His grace. And you need to say right now, yes. Yes. To His loving invitation. To His Spirit who is visiting you right now. This is what the Holy Spirit does. As we sang earlier today, it's His power to make our lives anew. And He can do it. He can do it. And once he has, you will find Jesus to be everything to you that he is to us. And more than you ever imagined. And congregation, as you come to this table this morning, come thanking. And by the way, is the name of this table, the Eucharisto, the Eucharist. Thanksgiving is what that means. Come that way to this table thanking the Lord that He has made Himself lovely to you. That He has overcome your rebellion so that you have willingly, gladly received Him and with Him and through faith in Him everlasting life. And then when you arrive here, in a few moments at this table. Receive him gladly again. Amen.